Hey everybody, welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. My name is Mike Petchy. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Um, today, we are going to dig deep into one of the most important aspects of filmmaking, one of the most important aspects of creating uh, visual content, and that's making the stuff worth shooting, designing the sets that inspire us, designing the world that audiences are completely obsessed with, and ultimately maintaining that suspension of disbelief, right? And uh, when you look at film sets and you look at sort of the generals involved and the people, the above the line crew, uh, one of the most, if not the most important positions on set is the job of the production designer. And I know that there are some of you who don't work in the film industry that are listening to the show and you're like, well, what is a production designer? What does a production designer do? Essentially, the production designer is in charge of designing the sets, designing the world. Um, they have their hands in a bit of everything. They work um, closely with the cinematographer. They work closely with the costume department. Um, they're essentially creating the worlds that we're allowed to then walk in on in film. So you look at some of my work, you look at 12KM. Um, we had an amazing production team. My buddy Travis Harrington came in and did the production design on that. And uh, Suja Uno and all these other people that were involved um, really built this world that I was able to then inhabit with characters, inhabit with actors that Cruda was then able to light. And uh, through my experience, I have worked on jobs where the production design hasn't been great. Uh, you're shooting on flats. Flats are a term for the walls that you use um, that are seamed together with tape, that are seamed together barely. Um, the, there isn't uh, a lot of furniture in the space. And so then you're trying to disguise a bad set with camera tricks and lighting turn off the lights when the set doesn't look good, right? Well, um, I one of the things that uh, you can't buy as a plugin, one of the things that uh, you can't really just sort of watch a YouTube video and learn is amazing production design. And so I wanted to have an episode in which we talked with one of the best of the best, the leaders in the industry, um, about how he got started in production design, his path that has led him for over 40 years has led him to where he is now creating, uh, in my opinion, literally the best production design show on television or on streaming service or whatever we call it these days, um, Marvelous Miss Maisel. Now, I don't know how many of you watched the show. Uh, it, it was a funny uh way in for me because initially i had heard about this show and it really wasn't my cup of tea and gina really had to convince me to get into it and it's one of those things where your girlfriend goes you have to watch this with me and you roll your eyes and you're like okay all right um, but instantly i was yanked into this world instantly i was pulled in the costumes were fucking amazing the acting is amazing the writing's amazing the dialogue's amazing but the thing more than anything else was the production design and we have seen this on multiple other streaming shows where you start to see the limits. You start to see the caps uh, based upon the budget, based upon the creativity of the crew, 
where um, you're watching a show and it's like, oh, obviously they ran out of money and they're back talking in a warehouse again. And here's another empty office again, or here's another empty uh, hospital room again. The thing that blew my mind about Maisel, especially in the first season, was that every episode seemed to have brand new locations and more locations and more sets. Um, and the level of detail that went into these sets. And this is period stuff. This was like 1958 period stuff. It's not like you can just go down to Target, you know what I mean, and buy those plates that they're eating off of. It's not like you can, you know, go grab that wallpaper, you know? Uh, the attention to detail on that show was jaw-dropping to me. Um, and so I wanted to find out who did it. I wanted to know who was the brains, who was the, the master, like who had mastered the art of production design uh, and was lucky enough to do it on the show. Um, so with a little bit of work, found out that it's a gentleman named Bill Groom. Now, Bill has been doing amazing production design for years. And as I did research on him, I was like, no shit, he did this and this and this. No shit, man. He did Boardwalk Empire, right? Talk about period production design. He was on that show. Uh, he did that vinyl show. Remember how uh, Scorsese was doing that show, Vinyl? I think it was for HBO. Um, that was completely immersive, right? He even did Milk. Remember Milk? I think that was Gus Van Sant that did that movie. Uh, Sean Penn. Uh, 1970s uh, San Francisco. So the more I dug into this cat, the more I looked at his body of work, the more I realized that he has, he must be a historian at this point. And I, look, okay, maybe I'm not describing this well enough. Okay, so let's say that you've written a scene, right, that takes place in 1958. What do the doorknobs look like? What does the furniture look like? What does the carpet look like? What were the color palettes for that time period? What does the molding around the fireplace look like? Right? And as a director, I walk into a space. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's a period doorknob. I don't know if that's the right molding. So, you know, sans me going into the library or me doing like an intensive search on the internet and stacking up knowledge and all this stuff who do you turn to who is the person that you want there telling you whether or not that's period whether or not that belongs at that time period and having this conversation with bill already and the level that he gets into with this stuff and i'm completely fascinated with like light fixtures and uh, he was talking about how there were many different ways of turning on a light at different periods of time in our country, uh, it was really interesting shit. Um, and it's this world that I need and I want to hire someone like this to be working with me, but it's not necessarily a world that I want to dig deep into myself. I'm not going to go out and pick up a bunch of catalogs on pencils from the 1950s, um, but this guy does. And you can see it. And there's something really awesome and fascinating, and I've talked about it other times on the show, with how getting older is such an important asset for you in this industry. Time, experience, age, you're, you're building all, you're taking all this experience and building this toolbox, this toolbox that you can rely on. And I know how fucking frustrating that is, and how frustrated we all get, 
especially when you get into this business and you're like, I'm really good at it. I want to be on set. That's where I am right now. I'm ready to make this film. I want to be directing this film. What is slowing this down? And there's this impatience that happens because of that. Sometimes it's just really nice to hear that even if you get started late, even if your opportunity isn't until your 40s, even if your opportunity isn't until your 50s, if you go in, you work hard, you put your head down, and you really get into it, you will find success. And Bill's in his late 60s, and he's getting offered the best TV shows to do on television right now. And his future is bright. He's excited about his future. He talks on the show about how he's over getting old, how it doesn't bother him anymore, how much he enjoys his time that he has, and how much he enjoys the opportunity that is coming at him. How exciting is that? In a, in a culture in which getting old is depressing, getting old means retirement, getting old means slowing down. Um, Bill, in his young age, is, is kicking ass. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with him. If anything, to find some inspiration for myself. Um, and I got a lot of serious questions for him, you know, as a director, like how the fuck did you pull this off? How did you make this happen? And is this all preconceived? The schedules on these television shows blow my mind. You know, he talks about how he had three days to do period stuff on some stuff, on some episodes. Like I said, it's it's not like you just go on to Amazon and go, hey, uh, send me that couch and send me this carpet and you lay it down. This is a lot of this is a lot of heavy duty work here, man. So if you're a fan of Ms. Maisel, you're gonna love this episode. We talk specifics about how we pulled certain things off and how certain sets came together. If you're a fan of production design, you're going to love this episode because he gets into it deep and he talks about where he started. Guys, you're going to be so impressed where he started and how he built his early toolkit. Um, this is a great episode. It's a great episode for you filmmakers. This is a great episode for you film nerds, uh, you Amazon fans. And I want to thank everybody who uh, brought this episode together for me and everybody that's been booking the shows for us. Uh, you guys know who you are. Thank you so much for making that happen. Um, and without you, we wouldn't have had today's conversation. And I want to take a minute to thank you, the listeners, for tuning into this uh, season, which has been an extended season. Um, but uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. We've created some of my favorite episodes, period, on the show so far. Um, and uh, this one is, is this one's a good one. So get ready for it. Uh, and as always, thanks to the fans that continue to support us on Instagram. If you go follow me at Mike Petchy on Instagram, or if you go follow the podcast at Unlove with the Process Pod, that's in Love with the Process P-O-D on Instagram. There, you guys have been leaving feedback. I've been getting a whole lot of those, hey, asshole, I want to promote your show messages. And you guys have been getting stuff from me for that. So if you love this show, tell your friends about it. We need more listeners. More. I'm greedy. I'm greedy for listeners. So if you like the show and you love what's going on, repost stuff. You guys follow me. You see that I post stories, repost stories. And if you don't have access to repost them, write to me and say, hey, can I have that graphic? Because I want to tell my friends about the show. And I will happily send it to you with a kiss. 
How's that? I'll blow you a kiss at the same time. <laughs> what a jerk. Anyway, without further ado, let's not waste time. Let's get right into it. Grab your noise-canceling headphones. Uh, find a nice, comfy couch. You'll get that joke after you hear the show. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about today's episode because I am the biggest fan of your work. And I, I didn't realize how many shows that I admire as far as production design goes um, that ended up being yours. You know, like Boardwalk Empire, yeah. uh, even that the vinyl show, which I thought was amazing. And then... Yeah. Uh, Digging even deeper, it was like milk. You you also worked on milk. Yeah, milk is a great great experience. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about today's show because I've only done one other episode on production design and production design from a directorial standpoint. To me, it's such an important uh, position on a on a set because you're literally crafting the world that we get to play in. Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm completely fascinated by that, and especially with at least your later work, uh, doing in, in very in-depth and very detailed sort of historical recreations of locations. So uh, I can't wait to ask you a bunch of questions about this. Okay, let's go. Um, so let's, let's just start. Let's just do a little housekeeping here for those of uh, the listeners that um, don't know who you are and where you've come from. Um, how did you get into, how did you get your start in production design? Oh, how far back do we want to go? Um, I, um, <laughs> as a kid, I used to um, create stages in my grandmother's basement and hang quilts as backdrops and, and arrange <laughs> furniture and do uh, little improvised plays for my cousins. I had 12 or 13 cousins, thir 12 cousins when I was a kid. Um, uh -huh. And uh, every Sunday we'd get together at my grandmother's house for um, – dinner and then the afternoon would be the time for a play downstairs um directed produced and designed by me um <laughs> that's where it started and then i i went to college as an art major i always followed art in high school and um went to college and declared an art major and um had a roommate who was a theater major and I kind of got involved in working on plays there and ended up designing um, plays for the theater department, the sort of main stage productions for a year. Uh, and I kind of learned by doing it myself. There wasn't uh, a set design mm -hmm. class. It's a little mm -hmm. tiny college with a tiny theater department. And, um, and then just through a couple of really, um, kind of lucky breaks went on to graduate school uh, in set design and costume design and um, mm -hmm. just one step at a time. You know, I, I used to work with a producer that said these aren't linear careers and that's kind of true. You sort of see what's coming your way and you make a choice and move on from there. Um, mm. So that's how I got into it. It's interesting too because 
t- technically production designer is sort of the department head of the art department and the one yeah. sort of designing all that kind of stuff. So do you find it helpful that you have had all those prior experiences like with costume design and art department? Does that all play into, you know, the job at this point? Well, yeah. And, um, you know, I think most of us who are theater, were theater majors um, in college, you know, also directed plays and acted in plays um, and musicals and things like that. So, uh, yeah, all of that, I think, um, helps sort of figure out how to contribute to the production, you know, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then you have a better understanding at that point, because essentially you're you're uh, like like so many of us when we do a job like that. You're a cog in the wheel, and you're trying to to contribute in the best way possible, and sort of anticipate issues and anticipate problems, and be one sort of step ahead. And any sort of crew member that I've worked with that has worked in multiple departments like that has that understanding of like this isn't just about my art. This just isn't about me doing something great for my reel. This is me understanding how the whole machine runs and how to sort of avoid these pitfalls that we normally see. Uh, because of that experience. You know? Yeah, for the first four years after graduate school, I taught uh, at the State University of Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. And I uh, decided that in order to spot, inspire the, um, the students, I would write quotes from um, famous set designers, uh, going all the way back to Edward Gordon Craig and people like that. But uh, I remember one quote from Joe Malziner, who was a great Broadway uh, theater designer. And the quote was the best, uh, set designer can hope to be, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, uh, the mm-hmm. best set designer can hope to be is a sturdy spoke in a well-set wheel, <laughs> um, which is kind of, I think that's, that's the truth of it. It's not, no, it's never about, or it shouldn't be, I don't think about showing off. Um, it's about creating an environment, uh, that that makes sense for the story and for the characters. Oh, I can't wait to get into that. Um, but so your first job was uh, Saturday Night Live, right? You got hired at Saturday Night Live. After yes, after teaching college, that was I decided that I wanted to, um, you know, not not teach forever something that I hadn't actually done um, <laughs> in, on a professional level. So. Um, I, I decided that I wanted to do that. I wanted to, uh, leave teaching and, and, um, and, and do professional work. And I always expected to go back to teaching at some point. Um, I always, in my head, it was always, I would go back to teaching at age 55. Well, that's been uh, (laughs) many years ago now and I'm still doing this, but, um, but I, there's still time to teach. Uh, I enjoyed teaching, but, um, Yeah. It um, it was just something I wanted to do to actually do what I assumed would be professional theater. But then this opportunity at Saturday Night Live came along and I took it and uh, from there got into movies and uh, television and more television and all of that. SNL must have been fascinating because I've heard stories from folks that have worked in different departments at SNL. We've had uh, writers on the show. We've talked to, like, I have friends that have been a part of the production crew over there. And I hear that it's just intense because you're literally getting ideas at the beginning of the week and then you have to deliver, you know, seven days later. That must have been crazy 
for set design and set building, right? Oh, it was really crazy. We we would have a read through on Wednesdays, and then <laughs> go back to our office while uh, the director who. Uh, then was Dave Wilson and the writers would talk and the producer, Lauren Michaels, they would all talk and figure out what was good for the show for that week. And uh, Dave Wilson would think about where we could, we had these various little um, slots in the studio where various sets could go. And, you know, we were limited because the studio, it's, it's a nice big studio, but it's uh, huge. I mean, it's not huge. So it's, you know, we would have various spots. So he would figure out what sketches could go in what spaces in the studio. And then at some point, about eight o'clock, it seems, as I, if I remember correctly, he would burst through the door and say, okay, here, guys, this is the show. And then we would start talking about where this sketch was going to go and where this one would go and how that one would work and so on and so forth. And then, and then he would take off about maybe 10 o'clock at night and we would start drawing. <laughs> and had to have drawings in the shop at it was either seven or eight o'clock seven I think the next morning and in the first years that I was working there um, I would be the guy that would take all the drawings that we would have finished at sometimes two or three in the morning mm-hmm. go home get a little sleep put the drawings under my arm take the subway out to Brooklyn uh, where the shop was at that time and um go through all the drawings with the carpenters and the, and, and we would start working and we would have Thursday and Friday to build all the sets. And they had to be in the studio by late afternoon on Friday. Oh my God. And so that they could rehearse on sets on Friday night. And then on Friday night until eight o'clock in the morning or so, the paint crew would paint all the floors and finish up painting on stuff that hadn't been finished in the shop. And um, we were on a live for the dress rehearsal. At, I can't remember now. It was six or seven o'clock. We had a dress rehearsal, full dress rehearsal. Everything at that point was finished, <laughs> dressed. Um, and then between the dress rehearsal and the air show, we would sometimes make some changes. So, um, it was it's, crazy is the right word for it, but it was, it's great, a, it was a great experience and it, it worked. Uh, it was clockwork. I mean, it just, everybody knew their role. Everybody knew what was going to happen. We knew when the crisis was going to hit every Friday evening. And um, <laughs> it just, there was just a kind of, it was a machine that, that was great. And it was just great training. I remember Leo Yoshimura, who's still there, um, has been there since he graduated Yale, actually, um, back in 19, was it, was it 75 when the show started? I don't remember, but Leo's yeah. been there. But I remember my first day in the studio, I very dutifully had a yellow legal pad and a pen and was ready to take notes and everything that had to be done because a lot of work, you can only do so much Thursday and Friday in the shop. And then things have to be finished up all the way up to the dress rehearsal on Saturday. Yeah, and I remember yeah, yeah. walking in and Leo, I had my yellow legal pad and my pen. Leo said, put that away. We don't have time for that. <laughs> and we literally did not have time to take notes. It was, 
it was like being a short order cook, which was my first job when I was 16 years old. But, you know, it's just the, um, the, the notes cool. are there and people, you know, yell out what they need. And it's, um, it, it's a kind of a controlled chaos, but it's great. It's, it was just a great experience. Must have been an interesting lesson in sort of anxiety management at that point, because it seems like you guys are just constantly on the hustle and trying to keep up. Is there was there any room for for art and something like that, or were you guys just like, okay, look, well, we have to build the store and we have to create a store set, so let's just oh, make a no, simple I mean, store set. That, I, no, I think that shows always. And Eugene Lee was the uh, original production designer. Leo was his art director in the first year of the show. Um, then every year they realized they needed a little more. They needed an art director to uh, do all of the uh, set dressing to go with the uh, prop department to do set dressing. And then they needed a person at the shop. And I'm not sure if I was, I think I might've been the first art director at the shop um, mm. that would go, you know, so basically it expanded to about four art directors. I mean, including Eugene, but four designers on the show, but Eugene set a very high standard in Leo too. And they continue to. I mean, if you look at it back in the early days, there wasn't any other show like that on television. The detail was, yeah, it, it was very detailed scenic work and uh, design work, and still is. It's a great show. Yeah, for sure. Especially the, like <clears throat> recently, their their light stuff and their live performance stuff is just absolutely amazing. I, I've noticed that, and I've actually wondered how they they accomplished that because. You know, the space is very limited. There's not a lot of offstage space for equipment and lighting. They, they do a, a, an amazing job given the, um, well, just without any qualifications, but, but also to know that it's just, it's a very limited space they're working with. Um, they do an amazing job. So, okay, so then this makes a lot of sense. So that's your training. If if that sort of intense uh, weekly training is how uh, you came up, then it's fascinating to me because one of my biggest one of my biggest questions these days, and I've asked cinematographers for for shows lately, like television has increased its quality, you know, twenty fold, and with streaming services like Amazon and and the other ones, they've done such a great job. Uh, creating uh, movie-like television programs. And, yeah. and you know, Marvelous Miss Maisel is a, a prime example of that. I, like, I can confidently say, watching that show, that, that that program uses the visual, like, cinematic language more than any other show I've seen on television. And my jaw drops when I, when I look at the level of quality per episode and then understanding what the schedule is for... for to, to capture an episode and how many days you have for it. And it's like, you guys are doing period quality, like Martin Scorsese film quality stuff for television episodes. Uh, it It's mind blowing to me and how you can get it done on that schedule. Um, is, is it as intense as it seems? <laughs> it's pretty intense. I, my son, um, Jack, who's, I have two, two kids and they both work in the movie and television business. And Jack is the younger one. He's 31, I think. Um, mm. At some point, my age, you start to get get them confused. But um, <laughs> but um, 
I, he um, said to me, because he worked on Boardwalk Empire for a while in the carpentry department mm-hmm. and, as a production assistant. And um, he said he had talked to one of the carpenters or a couple of the carpenters and asked them what it was like to work with me. <laughs> <laughs> and he said they said that they've never worked harder, but that they've never done better work. And I said, all right, I'll take that. <laughs> um, but we just push. We I don't know how to do it any other way. If I did, I uh, I would do it, but I'm afraid to do it. I've I we we do the same level of work that you would do on a on a feature film, really. I mean, I've been on sets for television shows where the seams in the um, you know, and the flats on the wall and all of that are covered with a piece of masking tape and then painted over. Yeah. We, we do the standard plastering that you would do on a feature. And um, I just, I don't know to how to do less. I, um, I, I hope nobody at Amazon hears that because they might be tempted to find somebody who does. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's not, it's not the cheapest way to work. Uh but it it seems to pay off on the screen because what you're saying I hear from people all the time and um, yeah and people who aren't people who are civilians if you will I mean people who don't have the knowledge of the background of movies and television and all of that who say the same thing so somehow it works and um, and it's uh, and, and also, I mean, I made the joke about it not being cheap, but the truth is, uh, you know, we have a budget just like every other show that we have to, to, you know, pay attention to. And, you know, that's, that's a hard part of the job every week or every, I should say every episode, you know, to go into this and to try to make it all fit in our budget and still do the level of work that we do that's that's an added challenge actually i can only imagine i can only imagine and uh before we get deep into that like i think a lot of listeners that uh may not understand that when you're when you're doing something like i've done i did a film recently based on a russian drill team from the 1980s that dug the deepest hole known to man and we had to build a set for the drill site and we had to bring in period equipment and bring in period mm-hmm. gear and I think that a lot of people don't realize that that extra step, like like you said, with having walls that don't have crappy seams, really not only not only creates <clears throat> an image on screen that is amazing, but also creates an environment for the actors, creates oh, an environment for the cinematographer, creates an environment for the director where we can go in and live in this space and find the truth in this space in order to capture that. Absolutely. I, I just did a panel not too long ago with uh, Tony Shalhoub, uh-huh. and he said that he enjoys the fact that even our backings outside doors and, you know, that when you come into the set, you're in the set before you step through and that that helps him as an actor. And um, there are one of the first shows that I did on Boardwalk Empire uh the director who was a visiting director for that episode went into a room and we had the entire room finished. And he said, I I don't know if I'm ever going to see the wall with the fireplace. And he said, I'm not accustomed to having that. And I said, well, it's there for you. If you, if you need it, it's, it's there. And, um, 
we um, that's I, I, I consider that when I'm designing stuff is what it feels like for the actors to be in the room and what it's like for the director and for the director to have choices and how he's going to frame or she's going to frame things. Um, so totally, totally. And I think a lot of people <clears throat> might look, might not actually consider what that means. Like when I'm, cause I'm still low budget. So when I'm doing my stuff, I'm very much storyboarding and I'm very much planning to shoot in specific corners of the room, knowing that I can save money and just build one side of the room or one side of the space. But when you're on set and you're playing around, like once you get past the planning and the planning on the page is usually storyboards or shot lists, and that's kind of flat because it's usually coming from a, a place, maybe it's coming from a place of research, maybe it's coming from a place of experience as, as a storyteller. But when you get into a spot and the lighting's there and you walk through the lighting and you walk through the atmosphere and you walk through the set and the actor does something different, something that you never would have ever been able to conceive because I don't believe in geniuses. And, and so you see something and you go, oh my God, that's amazing. It would be great to do a reversal coverage of that or it'd be great to change the positioning of that. Um, having you build build a whole period place that that could happen in, I think just enables the material to be even better because then you're following the honesty that you're seeing and finding. Um, one, of the, one of the first... Um, movies I worked on uh, as an art director uh, was Awakenings. And mm. uh, Anton First was the production designer. He was a brilliant production designer and sadly died um, a few years ago. Um, and um, we built uh, the examining room, the doctors, uh, um, Robin Williams uh, played Oliver Sacks, and we mm -hmm. built Sacks' examining room and office. And there was nothing in the script about uh, using the sink. Uh, so we just had a sink on the wall with a faucet and no water attached to it. And in the very first rehearsal in that space, Robin Williams said, okay, I'm going to walk over here and wash my hands. Um, <laughs> I was... Oh, okay. So ever since then, I, that was one of my first experiences with actors needing to improvise and use the set. And we scrambled and got it hooked up to water while they were lighting the scene. But ever <laughs> since then, I, I, I don't think I ever put a sink uh, in a set without having it hooked to water. And and. <laughs> All kinds of things, you know. I uh, I designed. You you mentioned milk. I designed um, Harvey's camera store, and mm -hmm. Ron Penn, who I'd worked with before as a director um, uh, on the Pledge, uh, when he was directing the Pledge, and he, um, I remember he asked when he walked through the set for the first time if we could fill the drawers with stuff, which we probably already had, but. We tend to do that. I always tend to do that kind of thing, too, because he wanted to be able to open the drawer and ruffle through the papers for something, wrestle through the papers for something. And um, so you have to think ahead, actually, to, you know, what how the actor might be using the set. And sometimes I'll come onto the stage on Maisel or certainly on Boardwalk Empire uh, when everybody's gone and I always make sure I've got a key. I'll go onto the dark stage, flip on the lights, go in, walk around the set, sit on the furniture, see what I'm seeing, uh, mm. you know, go through the doors, just get a feeling for it all. 
somebody once referred to me as a method production designer, but, um, <laughs> but I don't know how else to do it, you know, to get it right. Um, I'm not, some people may be able to, to design it without doing all of that, but they're smarter than I am. So, uh, no, 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 man. I think that's the, I think that's, I think that's it. It's funny because from the outside, people will look at the work or could look at the work and go like, okay, so this is what it's all about. It's all about color and it's all about color contrast. It's all about buying this and having this thing and bringing these people in and doing that kind of thing. But I think that detail, I think that's the key that you spend that time and you do that and you try to put yourself in the place of the actors and you, you put yourself in that moment because you're literally creating a world that doesn't exist. And then we're trying to, as a director, I'm trying to get talent in that space to give me a, an honest performance. And we all know, as soon as you walk into a stage, you're like, this is, this is fake. This is a fake thing. Like, this doesn't exist. Outside of this is my brand new car and, and all this other stuff. So then you're walking into the space, and I think it's inc incredibly important for it to be uh, transformative and, and incredibly important for it to be real and have things in the drawer and, and have a sink that works um, because you're just trying to get past that this is fake thought in your head yeah. and that's going to lead to better performances you know yeah there's a wonderful indian proverb that says and i'll paraphrase this i don't know it's it says something like the world is like the evidence left by the telling of a story huh. and I, when i first read that i thought wow that's kind of that's what i do i mean i try to create the evidence left by the telling of a story before the story happens. I mean, that's, it's the environment for the story to happen and for it to all make sense. Okay, it's that time to take a moment to take a break and thank the men and women responsible for this show for making it happen. I am talking about the sponsors. Boom. And uh, first up, our good friends, the people who have continued to stay with us, the people who are still sponsoring this show, even during the COVID crisis, right? That's a big deal. Shows have been dropping, sponsors have been dropping out of shows like crazy right now. And these people have been sticking with us. And that means a lot to me. Uh, first up, Puget Systems. The good boys over at Puget Systems. If you are a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a video gamer, and your computer is just not hacking it anymore, um, it's time to buy a new one. And I highly suggest you look into PCs because there is no reason not to these days. Uh, PCs are stable. PCs are less expensive. PCs are more customizable. You can specifically put whatever you want into that system to work for you. Um, I have been using a Puget Systems PC. I'm staring at it right now. I've been using this one for over five years, right? And this thing has not done me wrong. I cut 12KM on this thing. I cut who's there on this thing. Um, I just edited the last Dalestrung pieces. We're talking 4K full res in the timeline uh, without rendering playback, multiple tracks of video. Um, I love it. And uh, I've, I've hit a point right now where uh, I want to get something bigger and better. And believe it or not, I'm getting a brand new one. Uh, future episodes, I'll talk about the specs of my new system, but they are cool as hell. And this new system promises to be twice as fast. 
as the last one. Uh, and if you want to build your own Puget System, do yourself a favor, go to PugetSystems.com. There you can select a baseline system based upon the software you use, check the software that you want, and they'll offer up a baseline system. And here's what's really great about Puget is that they want to interact with you. They want to communicate with you. So you can write to them and say, guys, this is what my budget is. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I need. And they will walk you through it. And they'll talk about what you need and build you an amazing system that comes in a box. It isn't a sexy boxing experience, unboxing. Let me start that again. It isn't a sexy unboxing experience. It's just a box that shows up. So you're not paying for all that bullshit. You're literally only paying for the gear that you need. That's it. I'm not paying to join a cult here, guys. I just want a system that works for me. You take it out of the box, you plug it in, you turn it on, and it works fine. Uh, I love it. Go to PugetSystems.com, check it out. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there that aren't from the U.S. and that were really bummed out that Puget doesn't ship internationally. But what they're doing now is they're offering up a consultation service for a starting price of $500. They will walk you through everything you need to know about building your own PC. And this is important because these guys do a whole lot of benchmark testing. These guys beta test. These guys have tested all the new hardware all the different configurations to see what works best for different software platforms. Puget does not manufacture computers, they build computers. And that's important to note. So they're not just trying to sell you their hardware. They're doing deep, deep searches, deep dives into the best priced gear that works perfectly for what you need. Go to PugetSystems.com, check it out. I can't say enough good things. Um, love those guys. Also, continuing to support the show are our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the best advancements in technology for the film business has been lighting, LED lighting. Uh, LED lighting has changed the way our television shows look, our movies look. Uh, they make sets safer. They make sets faster. They give you more options. They're programmable. You can run through all sorts of different effects patterns. Uh, LED lighting is the best. And people ask me all the time, Mike, what do you have in your light kit? How do you design your lighting? I got a bit of everything, but I'll tell you right now, I definitely have some Quasar tubes in there. So I have a couple of bicolor tubes, and I also have a couple of rainbow LEDs. Go to QuasarScience.com, check it all out. Uh, very affordable stuff, uh, very rugged stuff. Lights that are built by the guys that are on set lighting things. There's an episode coming out with the owner of Quasar Science, uh, and we get into that on the show. So... Uh, definitely check them out. Go to QuasarScience.com. Also, uh, remember, our good friends over at Industry Jump. So if you go to IndustryJump.com or go to at IndustryJump on Instagram, uh, it's a great community for filmmakers, helps filmmakers meet other filmmakers, helps filmmakers find work, help filmmakers uh, advertise their work and gets them out there. It's a great community. I love Industry Jump. Um, they are, how would I say it? You know, here we're a bit more candid. They're they're a bit more professional than I am. So, if you don't like all the f bombs that I drop, go hang out over to Industry Jump. <laughs> what a good read for those guys. <laughs> uh, and as always, if uh, you're new to the show, like if uh, our cool new graphics, maybe you're Miss Maisel fans, and you came on board, and you're like, "Man, the show's fucking great." And then you go and you find us on your favorite podcast delivery system, whether that's Apple Podcasts or. Uh, Spotify or Stitcher, whatever you're listening to, and you look at the number and you go, man, what is this show? Is this like 86? Where do I start? How do I do this? Here's the deal. 
if you want, you can go back and listen to episode one. It's a great way to set the show up. You'll understand everything that happens with the show. Then go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I've built you a specific website that has categorized each one of the episodes based upon subject material. So if you want to listen to the director's episodes, there's a whole section of director's episodes. If you want to listen to film crew stuff like this one, there's a whole section for that. There are musicians, there are chefs, all sorts of different categories, easily put together for you. And if you go while listening to the show, right now while you're listening to the show, if you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and then click on this episode, all of the supplemental material, all of the clips, all of the stuff that we talk about is all curated there for you, which is important. If you're listening to the musician episodes, I also put up Spotify playlists based upon those. I have a Spotify playlist up there uh, that includes uh, Code Electro's music, who's the musician that we use for every episode of this. Um, so, like I said, inlovewiththeprocess.com. Great place to check our stuff out. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Let's transition a little bit here and let's talk about uh, working on period stuff because um, that within itself is a challenge. It's not like you can just go down to a Home Depot and pick up like period door, like, you know, door handles and and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you can do that and then make them period. I mean, you know, we... Uh, we find period stuff and we also create period stuff. And, um, you know, we um, sometimes buy new things and beat the hell out of them. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we've had a life. But, um, but yeah, I'm- that's, I, I love doing periods. So the first uh, movie I ever did for PBS many years ago, uh, I was 28 years old. I'm 68 now. So what is that? Six, I, actually, I'm sorry. I'm 69 now. So that's 41 years ago. Um, was uh, Life on the Mississippi for PBS, and that I've just for some reason have done period many period things since then. Not always period, but I love it. I love the research. I love the learning that happens with it and the discovery. That, um, you know, I when I first started Boardwalk Empire, that was, you know, that was a big high profile show. And I was very concerned, you know, to be able to do a good job on it. And um, I just spent so many hours going through hardware, period hardware catalogs and, you know, stationary catalogs and just all anything you can imagine from the period looking at pencils and paper clips and did they have that then and did they have this then and and you learn so much uh about the period that you you get to a point after the first season I was on the show you, you know I felt if we were on a location scout and someone would point to a I don't know name at a fireplace mantle a doorway something a window and say is that period I was pretty confident in knowing what the period looked like and how it was created in its day and could say yes. And then I would usually run back to my office and look through the books and make sure I was right. If I hadn't hadn't been right, I would have gone to the director or whoever asked that question and say, you know what, 
I was wrong about that. And here's what it actually was. But that I don't recall that happening. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, if you if you approach things in a kind of positive way, um, I I had a, a decorator once that I was working with. And every time a question would come up on the set, she would be, I don't know, that sounds really hard. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and at some point I said to her, look, just say yes. And if you're always positive and you're wrong once in a while, they trust you. They, meaning all of those people, um, yeah. <laughs> they trust, they'll trust you enough that when you go back and say, I was wrong, they'll respect that. But if you're always saying, I don't know, I have to look this up, that's probably hard to find. That's probably really expensive. It's just a downer, you know, to the whole process. Yeah. I try to stay positive, but in that particular case, and I'm rambling on about this, but the way to be positive was just to completely immerse myself in the research of the period. I try to do that with the fifties too. Um, and there are times, you know, when you, uh, will cheat a little bit because it's better for the story to cheat a little bit. Yeah. But, you you have to do it from a place of knowledge and you have to do it in a way that doesn't take anybody out of the the story you know well it, so speaking of research because that was going to be one of my big questions for you um at this point between miss mazel and empire and even vinyl like you're pretty much a historian <laughs> for New York City and how New York City looked for the past hundred years at this point. Well, yeah, for those periods, but it certainly changes every, you know, year. It changes every decade for sure. And um, it's just, it's interesting to know. I mean, there are certain things you use every day that you just, I was amazed on Boardwalk Empire when I found that there were push pins back then, clear push pins like we have today. The difference was they were made of glass and ours are made of clear plastic. Um, wow. wow. You know, there's just um, one thing I, and also people have said, I guess there's so much more in terms of technology and blah, blah, blah. It's different. I mean, what, what happens like when electricity came in, there were so many ways to turn a light on and off then huh. Huh. it's just like with computers you know there's stuff that's been invented in the last 30 years you know and personal computers is just not around anymore because it wasn't a good idea and that was true then as well i remember seeing uh I, we may have had it in the set deck office actually a light socket and i think i can describe this where it had a chain hanging down on one side and the chain went up and went halfway around the socket and dropped down on the other side. And to turn the light on, you turn, you pulled on one of the chains and it screwed the light bulb in as you turned it, <laughs> and it as you pulled it. And when you pulled on the other side, it unscrewed the light bulb and turned the light off. It's just, and, and sometimes it's fun to include that stuff in these period shows. Uh, things that you just don't have anymore. And it really kind of sets the period and, and uh, is interesting. Uh, oh, for sure. For sure. Because that you forget that if you, 
if you go over to your friend's house or you, you go over to a stranger's house, one of the first things you do after they ask, would you like something to drink? And they go into the kitchen is you look around and you look at all these details and you start to paint a visual sort of record of this experience that you're having. Yeah. Uh, that is really cool. I mean, if it, if it was on my set, that would have been an insert because <laughs> it's such a fascinating. And do you, do you find that while you're doing this research, do you find like these little hero props or hero things like that? That you're like, I'm, I'm definitely going to, this is going to be a big part of the show. Sometimes, but, but sometimes, you know, it's wrong to call attention to some, something like that. Sometimes it's perfect to call attention to it. So it's just, um, and I'm, um, I'm pr- I think I don't have, you know, I'm not talented in every department but uh, or in every way, but one of the talents I have, I think, is communication. I think that's just so, so important. And it's mostly out of fear that I'm going to put something on the set that the director's going to hate. And that <laughs> fortunately hasn't happened that I can recall. Um, I, well, that's not true. It's happened once or twice. Um, How do you handle that? How do you handle that? Well, you scramble and just try not to freak out. I mean, I, um, you know, it's just a matter of how you handle yourself. And uh, it's, you know, there are directors who are looking, you know, that can smell blood. And they're like, you know, there are people in the business who are like sharks and they're going to go after you. But if you... If you don't bleed, uh, you know, you're going to be fine. And and that's, you know, so it it hasn't happened often, but it's because I try very hard to communicate exactly what I'm doing uh, all the time so that there's not, and and it's not, it's partly out of self-protection, but it's also, it's my job to be collaborative with the director and to give the director what, you know, there's... um, there's the script, which is where you start, but then the director, it's the, the interpretation of the script through the director that um, is really where it, where it all lands. Hmm. And okay, so that's, that's an interesting sort of transition. So you get hired to do Miss Maisel, right? And so they haven't written all this, maybe they have the pilot episode written, but they haven't written all of the scripts for the series. Yeah. So how does it, so you, you get hired for the gig. You sort of get either a pilot script or someone gives you like the log line of what the show's about. And then do you just jump into research for that time period to start to put together basically your, your lookbook or how does it, how does it start for you? Um, well, it's hard to say. I mean, it might, it's different in different at different times and in different situations. Um, you know, there have been times when I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to say this in the clearest way. Um, sure. Sometimes you just discover what the show is, and that could happen uh, with a location. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could happen with a prop. It could mm-hmm. happen, you know, a sofa or something. I've, you know, and it can happen sometimes with wardrobe. I like to know early on what the wardrobe department is doing with the actor or the actress who's been working with them on the character. And you can tell a lot about what kind of space the character would live in by the kind of clothes they're wearing. Um, 
and so there's that. I mean, there, um, you know, sometimes, you know, locations, very few, um, projects are done strictly on stage, uh, just sort of created out of whole cloth, as they say. Mm-hmm. Usually we're combining locations with built sets. And there are times when um, you you kind of want to make the locations look like the sets on stage look like locations. And at the same time, the locations look a little like the sets. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of style that emerges and I don't think that's something that y- you um, impose on the show from the outside in. I think it's something that grows from the inside out. Hmm. So occasionally you'll find a location and you'll say, this is perfect for the show. And you don't know why exactly. Hmm. Then you find another one and you go, this one's perfect. Maybe you've got two or three locations and you kind of step back, or I do, and you step back and you say, okay, what do these have in common? What are they telling me about the show? And then you can move forward with the things you design and um, the other things that you find, that the other environments that you find. Fascinating. Um, and the, Fascinating. Same thing, the same thing might true, be true of an old sofa. I have a beat up old sofa here in my little cabin in the woods upstate that I was going to get thrown out at Boardwalk Empire. We had a huge um, tag sale at the end of Boardwalk Empire. We had several. We had we had over 50,000 square feet of uh, storage of property. My God, yeah. On four levels. We had sofas <laughs> stacked four levels high. <laughs> Sofa, I just fell in love with. I don't know why. I still, I'm looking at it right now. I don't know why. Um, it was beaten up. It was ripped. It was, you know, now it's got a lot of throws on it to cover up its um, sadness. But um, it was just, I just loved it. And I could not find a place for it in the show. Nothing ever. Until we did a set. It was Billy Kent's apartment. I don't know if you remember that character, but. She was an actress um, mm-hmm. that um, lived in a sort of a garret apartment, and it was sort of to be a bohemian kind of thing. And this sofa was just perfect. And we sent it out to an upholsterer and had all the rips stitched together so they still looked like rips but wouldn't fall apart while we were shooting. And um, and it it kind of informed that entire apartment. The sofa came first. <laughs> so it just, the inspiration can come from anywhere, really. And um, you have to just be open to that. It's, you know, your love for, your love for that sofa is infectious. And I think that's, re- I think that's really great. I think, especially if being. It, you, if you saw it, you would wonder why the hell I have it. But, oh, but you know, but that's part of it. I, see, for me as a director, it's tough sometimes because I try to surround myself because I don't know how to do a lot of stuff. And I try to surround myself with people that do. And then most of the time I'm looking for reactions. I mean, ultimately, that's that's my job is to see how this idea is responded by, you know, like how people react to these specific ideas, how people react to these images, 
how these reactions are. And I love that infectiousness, especially when you're putting together something that um, isn't all there yet. And you're, you have sort of that infectious sort of positivity, which is like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could very easily convince me to fall off with that couch. Well, and as a director, you have to be an audience member too. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's tremendous subjectivity in, in what, you know, especially directors and writers do, but there's also a kind of objectivity that you have to have. You know, I did many uh, projects or, you know, I don't know, a half dozen or maybe not that many with uh, Penny Marshall. And yep. she had such a kind of delightful way of answering questions about things like, why did you do this? You know, and her answer might be, I don't know. I just know it makes me cry, <laughs> which is sometimes all you need to know. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and she she's an example of someone who is just always the audience member, um, seeing it through the eyes of somebody who's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. It's important. It's really important. And then hopefully... When you actually sit down with an audience, you, st you see it the same way. <laughs> yeah. After you yeah, that could be, a, it could be a, a colossal mistake, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, you know, immediately. And it's, it's such a strange thing because there are these different stages when you're looking at material, like when you're, you walk into like a set that's under construction, you look around and it's sort of like, oh, this could work and this might work. And then you put it through glass so then you put it through a lens and that changes everything and you're sort of watching it on the monitor and you're like, there's this new sense of discovery. And then you end up in the edit room and you're <laughs> you're staring at this stuff going, did I get everything and does it work? And then you find a new sense of discovery as you sort of cut things together and the juxtaposition of this shot versus this shot. And then what does that mean? That's really great. And then you, as soon as I, I find this every time, I don't even need people to respond. As soon as I sit down and the, with an audience and I see it on the screen, I see it honestly, and it suddenly transforms into being beyond all of the, the, the steps it took for us to make it. And you, you immediately know if it's good or not without people even responding to it. It's a weird thing that happens. Yeah. I, um, I sometimes, you know, especially with features, with um, TV, it's happening a little faster. And so you can actually go in and see a cut while you're doing the other episodes and and, uh -huh. you know, maybe only a couple of weeks later. And um, but features, you know, I for me, for the designer, you often don't see a cut of the film until months later. And yeah. um, sometimes I've just had the experience of going in for a premiere or something, having really not seen it happening along the way months later. And you sit down and you watch this and you think, how the heck? hell did we do that <laughs> you know, we were talking about the prep the preparation and all that but s sometimes you just take one step in front of the other and it's the next next task and the next one and the next one and then when you look back at it and you just think wow um and i think everybody has that experience um it's cra it's crazy and it, like, like on Maisel, like how, how do you, because the, the sets and the locations and the production design is so specifically 
I don't want to say it's perfect. It's just, it's so wonderfully planned out and it never feels like when you're looking at it, that there are corners that are being cut. And there's a lot of other shows on, on, on services and on television where you can see them going, okay, they ran out of money. So they went back to the same warehouse again and they're doing another conversation in the same office again. And it, the thing that blew my mind about Maisel is it just like the, the constant flow of locations and the constant flow of, of, of spots and spaces just, it, it seemed to, to, to not have any restrictions, which was insane. Well, um, I think that's our, our producer. She's an amazing producer, uh, Dana Gilbert. Um, and she has said to me many times that everybody thinks on Maisel, we just have a blank checkbook, which is absolutely not true. And mm-hmm. um, she doesn't. She doesn't like it. People think that because it somehow diminishes the work we do. But, but you know, you just um, you do what you have to do, and you do it with the resources you have. And um, it's not at all a blank checkbook. It's it's a a struggle every episode to make everything fit, but never at the same time never lowering your standards. I mean, Amy and Dan are show creators. You know, they they write this forward motion in the um, scripts that are that it's a challenge to address that all the time. But it's what we do, and um, you know, I've only gotten cranky with them once or twice about that. But um, <laughs> but it's and everybody everybody accepts that. I mean, it's. Nobody resists that, I should say. It's not something that you have to accept, but it's just what that's the style of their writing. They're just moving ahead, moving ahead, moving ahead with the story. And um, yeah, it's and on, on Boardwalk, we did have a lot of sets that we reused over and over, but I don't think you would ever know they were the same places. I, I learned on that that you can you can use the same room and all you have to do is make the main entrance on the opposite end of the room and change the Mm. color and the dressing and that, you know, there, there are ways to do that successfully. And then there are ways that you do it, that it, you know, you don't want the audience to recognize that this is the same set you used for, you know, last season for blah, blah, blah. So, um, that's just that's partly, I think, a, a skill thing. And I have a great team that I'm working with. So that's a, very important, too. And the first season, we did a little shuffling around and replaced a couple of people. But now we have we just have a great team. And they know what I'm like to work with. I, I know what they're like to work with. And, um, you know, that's that's a very important thing, because. And it's one of the things that, I mean, going back to what we first started talking about, when I was an art major in college, I would just look at a blank canvas and not know what the hell to put on it. I just, I needed mm. a story. And, and that, to, to discover this, um, this work that's so collaborative, you know, was very exciting. And I just, I love the collaboration. Mm, I do too. I mean, it's the best part about that. I mean, it's an interesting time that we're in right now with COVID and, and, uh, you know, I'm out here in Los Angeles and 
tomorrow, I think, is the first day that they're allowing productions to start up again. And it's going to be a whole different experience now with uh, uh, different crew people being allowed in onto sets and certain people having to be quarantined. And it's like there's a whole new system that they're going to be trying to in, um, put into place to be able to shoot during this time period. Yeah, we have a season four ahead of us, and uh, we don't really know how we're doing it yet. Yeah, it's because they have to, I mean, who knows until you start testing it. It's fascinating. I've heard like a bunch of different stages and steps that they want to put into it. My fear and my hope is that it doesn't sort of destroy that communal element and it doesn't distance everybody. And I know you're supposed to be distancing at this point, but uh, part of the beauty of of these is that community element of it. Oh, absolutely. And and it's going to take so much longer because... We're, we're trying to put in place the art directors that we, we call in, in LA, they're called set designers in New York. We call them assistant art directors, the people who draw the, the sets. Um, mm-hmm. But we're trying to put together a team of assistant art directors that we can trust to work from home that I can trust that I can say it's, it's going to be this, it's going to be like a tenement building. It'll be the fourth floor up and blah, blah, blah. And let's do, corner blocks with plinths at the bottom. And, you know, I mean, just that have the shorthand of the architectural language and the, and that have, we've worked together enough that I can just let people, you know, one of our um, assistant art directors is working in Virginia and she's Mm -hmm. done some work for us and I've been very happy with it. Um, But it's, it's not a very satisfying way to work. Yeah, right. Because you're just spending a lot of time doing Zoom calls and then back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be fascinating to see how it plays out, you know. Um, but the it's. Let me just say this: Where are we at? We're, we're doing okay. How are you doing on time? You still okay? I, I'm fine. I'm up here in the country. Um, <laughs> good. All, except all the little projects in the house that I've been delaying for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as of now, this conversation has been wonderful. So I just want to oh, say thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'm just completely fascinated with with how you build these worlds um, and how your brain sort of functions on this stuff. And, and so, and it just seems like through our conversation that it's just this, this collection of time for you, time and experience and how time and experience has, has built this toolbox that you're consistently going back to, um, to mine ideas or to understand how architecture works or to understand how to communicate with the crew. Um, and then at this point in your, in your life, at your age, uh, you're getting like amazing jobs. And I think one of the most interesting portions of the film business here in the U S at least is that with age comes, great experiences and with age like in this business you know there's a lot of respect for time in and there's a lot of respect for that um are you finding the same thing working this way uh yes and i I, you know i won my first award uh which my the first one might have been an art director's guild award i've won three of those now and four emmys and that all happened for work that i did after i turned 60. Uh uh-huh that's awesome that was awesome. Um, and, you know, I'm a slow, I'm a slow learner. Um, but uh, I, you know, there was a time, uh, what was it, 30 years ago? I don't know. There was, a, there was a time where if you weren't 
you know, 20 or 22 with a nose ring, you couldn't get a job as a production designer. I mean, there was just this funny little period when everybody's like, oh, I want somebody with attitude and I want blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> and I did, uh, years ago, I did um, uh, a show called Riding in Cars with Boys um, with Drew Barrymore. And mm-hmm. um, we had some reshoots to do. And I'm not going to get into the, you know, weeds with the details, but it was a scene that we had to shoot that matched a winter scene we had shot in New York, but we had to shoot it in LA on stage. Oh, wow. So I came up with this solution, which was basically a boathouse all covered in um, sort of uh, translucent plastic and the when they pumped the lights through it, it had the same quality of lighting as this snowy dock out on the waterhead. So they basically stepped at walking down the docks, they stepped through this boathouse and it really worked perfectly because I didn't have fake backgrounds or fake snow going, or it was just matching the quality of light. Mm. I don't even know if that all ended up in the movie, but uh, a piece of it might, but it worked really well. So I had just turned 50 and I was staying over uh, on the beach in Santa Monica. And before I would go to work, I'd get up in the morning and walk down the promenade there all the way down toward um, Venice and back. And Mm -hmm. I was a little bummed out. I was turning 50 and (laughs) As I was walking along, I was thinking of how successful this solution was. And I thought, you know what? I wouldn't have been able to do that before 50. Yeah. That that came with experience and understanding what the light looks like on the screen and all of that. So, yes, I think there is some advantage to experience. Um, And... um, you know, I've, when people have asked me if I have a motto, I always say, never give in, never give up, never, never. I, I, I'm actually misquoting it. It's a, it's a um, uh, quote from um, ugh, Second World War or, or from uh, the British. God, my mind is blanking. He said, never give up, never give in, never, 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 never. And that's kind of how I didn't give up in my 50s. And I didn't give up, you know, I, if, I think if you love what you do and you're not yet where you want to be, you just don't give up. Um, and, and that and the experience at some point kind of pays off if you stick with it. It's, I've heard this advice myself and, you know, I'm turning what 42 this year. Um, I, and it's, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of young uh, filmmakers that are, that are listening to the show. And when I was younger in my twenties and I decided that this was my career path, um, I became very obsessed with it. And then you sort of hit this point where I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this. And it took for me, it took a good 10 years for me to have the life experience an understanding of loss and understanding of death and understanding of these things that I had to just physically live as a storyteller for me, for me to understand it enough. Because prior to that, if I was doing it in my twenties, it would all be in theory. Like, I think this is what it's like if your parents die, or I think this is what it's like if this happens. Right. Um, And it just doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel 
grounded yet. Um, and so with time and with experience, whether you're talking about life experience or whether you're talking about work experience, um, I, I always talk about building your toolbox on the show. And it, 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 it just seems like the more full that is with experience, the better the work's going to be. And it's no strange thing that you're getting awards at 60 and that, you know, you know, Clint Eastwood's making amazing films uh, because of all that time and all that experience that's put into it. Um, it was Winston Churchill who said, never give up, never give in, never, 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 never about Second World War. That was yes. my slogan before I knew that he had said it first. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, um, I'm surprised that I'm actually happy being old. Um, it, <laughs> you know, I still felt in the uh, elder years of middle age until about 65. But then I'm, at some point I just was like, okay, I'm old now. But it's okay. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, in, I'm enjoying whatever experience I've got. And I'm also enjoying whatever I have to look forward to, you know, I mean, there's, there's still more, I think I, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you've got a great job. You know, one, you one of the things I think that happens when you're young, all of us, you know, we think we've invented some solution to a problem. And it's the greatest thing because it's new and only because it's new to us. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't work. And the older ones following the same path might say, oh, yeah, we tried that years ago. It doesn't work. Um, but, I, you know, you do learn kind of what works and which you, you, you acquire solutions and approaches to problems as you get older. And then you reject certain things that that aren't as good as they sounded when you were younger and thought that you were a genius. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of getting older is, is that it's finding that humbleness and understanding through experience yeah. that like, yeah, maybe I didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah, when you're trying to get up out of a chair, you don't have any choice, but to be humble sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, when somebody says, you know, age is just a number, it's like, mm, actually, no, it's not. It's just a number, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell that to my knees. <laughs> uh, so to get know, back I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, I'm what I'm finding, I wanted to say, what I'm finding is that this millennial crowd um, has a lot more respect for mm. older people and the experience than I found kids of that age 20 years ago had. Um, mm. I think there's a kind of uh, an intergenerational uh, system of working that I find really nice. I like it. I like working with, um, with, you know, the young kids. I, I, I went, I had a, a new cell phone and I was out of town. Actually, I was in the Midwest and I went into an AT&T place and, and tried to figure out how to get my, hotspot to work. I, I wasn't sure where to find, I don't know, whatever. And this, this mm -hmm. um, girl who was helping me with the black fingernails um, and everything, <laughs> I thought she was great. She was showing me and she was very nice. And I said, you know, here's the deal. It's not that at my age, I can't do this. It's just that I don't give a shit. 
<laughs> and there are there's always a 22 year old around somewhere to help me. So that's <laughs> I enjoy that part about um, you know a production company. It's just it's all ages, and I'm probably I'm maybe the oldest person on Maisel actually on the crew. Um, so. That's good. I mean, it's still cool, man. It's it's cool that you're, you know, a leader and you're creating this work that's inspiring. And, and there's something to be said about the work speaking for you, especially when you're dealing with, with younger folks that are coming in. And uh, you must have a lot of fans on that set because of this stuff. So uh, we get uh, along, I think. So yeah, it's great. It's really great. Um, speaking of Miss Maisel again, uh, the other thing that I found fascinating about that show was that each season, you know, with most television shows that are successful, each season tends to get bigger and the stakes get bigger. Um, but you guys literally changed locations with each, like it changed up everything with each season between the first season pretty much being New York and sort of establishing everything and then getting to that point where they go up to the Catskills and it's a whole new look, a whole new sort of like summertime vibe and then going on the i really loved the season where they went on the road and they were they were traveling and they were doing all that stuff um is there do you have a favorite season do you have a favorite period that you've worked in with so far uh i don't know i don't think so i mean i i don't nothing stands out as like oh i wish we were doing it the way we did it in season whatever but um you know, I enjoy the travel. The travel's fun. And we haven't traveled that much. A lot of what you've seen we've created in New York or near New York. Um, interesting. Interesting. So yeah. then you just you just build out places to look like you're on the road. Or- well, New York is, I've worked in New York ever since I started in this business. And I love L.A. I mean, I've thought about moving out there. But, um, but you know, every time you think you've discovered everything there is in New York, you find something else. So, and there are a lot of different looks in New York. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was great fun going to Paris and working in Paris. And we were there for two episodes. Um, mm-hmm. Had a great crew. And, you know, it was. Um, yeah. Is there is there a specific, you know, because of your love of that couch, is there a specific <laughs> set that, 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 that you, that you love that much? <laughs> <laughs> is there, there a specific. There's not a couch I've fallen in love with yet on Maisel, but. <laughs> the, the furniture in um the fountain blue we had made um so um because it you know it was very specific we tried to be as true to the period for the fountain blue as possible so we had a lot of that furniture made um and we're building quite a nice little stack of furniture too in our warehouse it's super cool and it and to get back to sort of the planning of the show, how long do you generally have between when you actually get the script and you guys have to get cameras rolling? Like how long is the uh, intro? You know, it's, it, it's been, uh, as little as three days. Jeez. Um, <laughs> now we've usually had, uh, an outline ahead of that and that's sometimes, or a set list and that's sometimes all we need. But generally, we have more time than that. But that's that's not particular to Maisel. That's been my experience with other shows. Um, that you know, sometimes there's very little time to get it together. But you've been having conversations, 
you've been talking about the set list with the director and um, generally uh, the, the visiting directors, I think our um, sort of footprint, if you will, is 10 days of prep Mm -hmm. on each episode. Now that doesn't mean like right now I've got uh, some information on what might be in season four um, but, um, since we don't really know how we're doing season four or when exactly, uh, it's a little hard to use them. But, um, right. Yeah, but if you got the model is 10 days, the pattern is 10 days. And are you like, <clears throat> if this wasn't COVID time and you have that information, would you be at this point, either doing research or are, are you stacking props? Do you, do you stack warehouse full of stuff that you just sort of go to when you only have three days and you're like, okay, let's bum, 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 or is everything custom made for each script? Uh, no, it's not all custom made. It's, it's, um, we, that was one reason we acquired so much stuff on boardwalk. I, I, um, I joined the show the second season and, um, uh, it, I just was surprised that there wasn't much stock scenery and not much, uh, furniture or, you know, set dressing, um, uh, mm -hmm. probably for the reasons of whatever was written for that first season. And, and again, the writing sometimes is much more condensed than the first season. And then it expands as you go along. And certainly on Maisel, you know, she has a career and we hope that her career expands. And as it expands, so do the theaters that she performs in. Mm. Um, and so do the number of extras, you know, on, on the third season of Maisel, we had the, uh, USO show that opened the season. We, oh, amazing. We, we had 800 extras in war in costume for that. <sighs> wow. Wow. That, that specifically, I was going to bring that up. That was specifically an amazing feat. Um, and that location was, was outstanding it, it, for that one. Was that just finding that, uh, that hanger to begin with? And then were you just, were you manipulating that hanger? Cause I noticed this is how nerdy I'm getting with it. I noticed how in the windows, a lot of the certain cells of the windows were like a great shade of blue. Was that something that you did on set or was that something they were doing the color? correction like did, did that set come with window panes that were blue so much stuff like that is just a happy accident yeah and um that hanger is actually well the story is that i suggested a hanger because i thought there was a, a hanger that would be available out at a place uh, called floyd bennett field in brooklyn it's an old uh airfield and, mm -hmm. and it wasn't available at all. <laughs> okay. The problem was Amy loved that idea. So I was, I was stuck with it. Um, so <laughs> we had to find a hangar and we ended up finding one at a place called Republic airport out on Long Island, but it's an aviation museum and it's full of, uh, planes and parts and things and, um, ah, that makes they sense. We're very happy to work with us, and they emptied the place for us, um, wow. and it worked really well. Um, but um, yeah, 
Yeah, because I was going to ask about the airplane too, because there's an airplane in there. So that's it's, it's all sorts yeah. of really fascinating period stuff. And it must have been. I'm just looking at that opening scene, going, "This must have been the whole show's budget for just the opening." Because the airplanes inside the hangar were there. The, nice. Uh, w- but what we had a little bit. I mean, this is will be interesting to your um, pod people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you call them? What do you call your podcast? Just pod podcast listeners, <laughs> pod people. What is this? The body snatchers. <laughs> I've been, I've been uh, as I've said up here in the country for a week. I don't have television here, so I've been my I've gotten my television from YouTube, and I've been completely hooked on Dame Edna, and uh, and Dame Edna, of course, calls her audience possums, but. Um, um, so your pod people. Um, I love it. Now, now I don't even know what I was going to say. I've lost my creative thought being silly. Um, uh, you were talking about, we were talking about the hangar and we were talking, I was talking about how that, sh- that uh, scene must oh, have been the entire well, budget. Yep. W- one thing that became complicated because the wardrobe department and Donna Zakowska is an amazing costume designer. Um, mm-hmm. And, but she has a budget to work within too. And to get 800 military uniforms was not easy. Oh, my God. Um, and so what she could deliver was Army. This could have mm. been Army, Air Force. I think the Air Force was fairly new at that point. But Air Force, Marines, all of these things, Navy, that was something we considered on the deck of a boat. Um, but... She needed it to be Army. So, but what I had to do was find out if the Army actually flew planes. Did they? I don't know. Mm. They did. We got it. We brought a consultant in. It was kind of limited, but they did on some Army bases have hangars and planes. But we needed that drive up to the hangar and, um, we wanted to go past airplanes. Mm-hmm. So in New York, um, the prop master does the uh, vehicles. That's not true in LA. But mm-hmm. so uh, Jose, he's a great prop master. He's, um, he's been with us since the beginning. He brought all of those in from all over the country. Those, those were train, army training, training planes that he brought in from Chicago, from all over. Uh, I think there were 15 of them. Um, so that was, you know, we, uh, there's so many problems that have to be solved on any given episode or in any given movie or whatever. And that people, you know, normally don't think about that so much. Um, even in our business, like it's funny, the younger directors and the younger producers, it's, it's like, I have such a huge, because after doing a period piece myself, I have such a huge respect for the art team because they're, they're usually the first ones involved. They're the ones that are, that are cramming in late nights, in, insane late nights, yeah. you know, waiting for paint to dry, you know, you know, being stuck with like these social things or these, these, um, these restrictions, physical restrictions like paint drying or, or plaster drying. Uh, and and trying to get stuff done at such a last minute rate, 
um, and, and literally just barely stepping off set in time for people to come in and then being a part of, you know, having that whole team be a part of like the deconstruction of that and, the, and, and reusing and, and the cataloging and the, and the, the warehouse stacking of all this stuff. It's, it's such an amazing unsung hero aspect of filmmaking um, that I have the utmost respect for because you just don't, it, it isn't the sexy thing you think about where it's like, what is the cool new camera that I'm using? And then what's the talent? And it's all this, it's, it's these magicians that come in and create these worlds and create these environments that, that we're lucky enough to be. I cannot imagine what that must have been like to be on that set as a director and be, be looking at that shot with all these different planes and her riding in that Jeep and the outfits and the wardrobe and the color coordination. Um, it's just magical. And I think what you do is, is, is plan magic. <laughs> well, it's, it's in the best of circumstances. It's hard enough. And now we have COVID. So you know, I was in a meeting with the um, uh, United Scenic Artists. It's our East Coast Art Directors Guild, basically, a Zoom meeting with some of the production designers. And there were questions. One of them said, I hear we're not going to be able to have doorknobs on the set. What? <laughs> what? Um, you know, we're going to have to sterilize the sets like every day. It, it's it's a whole new world. That. Um, so yeah. the idea of putting the last paint on the wall just before the cast walks in is not going to happen this year. Um, yeah. Everything yeah. will take a lot longer. And but we'll see. We'll talk again sometime later in the season. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to hear. I'd love to, because I think I'm going to do a follow-up uh, show as we sort of progress on like how productions have shaped and how they've changed based upon this crisis. Because, you know, there's a whole, like I said earlier, there's a whole lot of theories out there. Um, be cool. It'd be interesting to see how it plays into practice. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm interested. Fascinated. I mean, having mentioned the doorknob problem, I don't think that's the solution to an international, to a pandemic, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that seems far down the list, but anyway, um, this will fix it. Get rid of the doorknobs. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but all right. Well, we're coming to a close here at our time. I, I, I just want to say it again, Bill. You have been wonderful, and I really appreciate the sharing that you've done on the show. I'm better. Um, when, I'm better when I actually don't have to be on the screen. So, <laughs> well, good. I'm happy that it, I'm happy that we're getting the best build possible. <laughs> um, this is the part of the show where I, I usually ask our guest um, to give a little bit of advice to the younger listeners that are that are um, trying to get into the business. Um, if you, uh, if someone listening because of our because of our conversation absolutely falls in love with the idea of being a production designer um, what would your advice be to them to start is it to go to school is it to work on sets like what do you think a good way for someone to cold get into the businesses wow um, I did it through going to school and you know having that experience I don't think that's the only way to get into it but um, I think you can't start too big. I say that, I mean, with the idea of being, I think you've got to start where you can start, basically, and then move forward from there. 
um, and always do your best work. I mean, when when I've been in situations, you know, and sometimes you find this in the business, it's a freelance business. Sometimes you will come into a situation where somebody has it in for you for some reason or another. Mm. You know, their buddy didn't get hired to do what you're doing or many different reasons. But occasionally that, fortunately, I haven't had too much of that. But when I've sensed that, that somebody's been kind of against me for some reason or another, I, I always tell people just put your head down and do your very best work. And that will, that will work, I think too. And that's, I think getting started in the business, just take whatever opportunity you have, do your best work you can and just move forward. And people will, people will recognize that and um, look for you to do other things and move up. I think, I don't know. Um, It's mine's been a very, uh, non-linear approach to this, um, but um, but I think you have to keep in mind what it is that you desire and what your the work you love, and just as I say, if you love it, just don't give up. Well, there you go. That is how Bill does it. Uh, amazing work on marvelous Miss Maisel. I have had nothing but good things to say. And then after talking to Bill, um, I really wish I was working with the guy on my next project because he sounds like a pure joy to be around. His positivity is infectious. um, And uh, I cannot say enough good things about him and our conversation. Uh, And I'm really excited about the new season of Marvelous Miss Basil. I am not lying. This isn't me just promoting Amazon, guys. Like, I love that show we sought this guy out because of how cool that show looks so if you haven't seen it yet definitely go check it out and pay attention to the production design and watch an episode of that after listening to this show um it is on amazon you'll find it there but you'll see why i was obsessed and then dig through his catalog of stuff i mean this guy's been working with scorsese for a long time no stranger to really good content and really amazing looking stuff. And I love it when a movie can transport me to a new place. That's why I like a lot of big sci-fi stuff, but that's also why I like a lot of period stuff is that it takes me to another time. We get to see how people brush their teeth in the 1920s. You know what I mean? So I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening to the show as always. And uh, yeah, Hopefully you guys are staying sane and safe. We're recording this on the 11th. Tomorrow, the 12th, is the first day that Los Angeles is allowed to open up their movie sets again. I'm fascinated to see what that means and see how people are handling the COVID crisis with that. I'm also interested in seeing whether or not there's going to be a massive fucking surge after our weeks of protesting. I'm curious to see what happens next. So, fingers crossed on that vaccine. Fingers crossed on being able to go back to work. Fingers crossed on being able to hang out with your friends and family again. Um, Hope everybody's being safe. Hope everybody feels inspired. And I hope you guys have been doing your hard homework. So, we get put back out there in this world. We're running with it. You know what I mean? All right. That's it. 
As always, I will see you next Tuesday.